Moses, the great leader of Israel, made a logical decision and lived to regret it. The people had come out of Egypt. They'd crossed the Red Sea. Uh, they had been to Mount Sinai where God's holy law had been revealed to them. And they had now come within a relatively short period of time to the southern border of the land of promise, a place called Kadesh Barnea. And there, as they're on the southern border of the land, ready to cross over into the land of promise, Moses preaches a sermon. It is a message of encouragement. It is a message of challenge. And you can read the sermon in Deuteronomy chapter 1 if you choose to do so. What Moses says in the sermon is God has placed this land before you. Here we are on the borders of it. Let's go take possession of it because God has promised it to us, starting with Abraham. So don't be afraid. Don't hesitate. Don't be discouraged because of the awesomeness of the task. The Lord our God is with us. That was his sermon. And when the sermon was over and the benediction was pronounced, the people said, well, now wait a minute. Wait a minute. Before we push ahead with this new enterprise, we need to see if it makes sense. We need to see if it's really feasible. I mean, we can't just rush into this new land. We don't know what's over the border. How do we know what lies ahead? I mean, what are the pitfalls that may be there? What are the obstacles we might encounter? Plus, we haven't evaluated our resources, really, to see if they're sufficient for the task. You know, Moses, what I think we need to do is appoint a committee. And so let the committee be appointed and let them carefully study the matter. And then let them uh, come to us with appropriate recommendations. We'll call a special congregational business meeting. And uh, we'll take a vote on what we should do. And Moses, you know, we probably, this is my uh, little addition to the text, uh, we probably should uh, have a name for our study committee. And uh, it doesn't have to be catchy, but we should come up with a name for it. Um, how about uh, the Land of Promise Planning Commission? Why don't we call it that? Or, or maybe better than that, the Land of Promise Investigative Committee. And so Moses agreed, and in doing so, he made one of the worst leadership decisions of his life. Now, I invite you to have your Bibles open to Numbers 13 and 14. We'll be looking at a great number of verses. None of them will be on the screens. But, but I invite you to open your Bibles to Numbers 13 and 14, because I want to walk through this story in these two chapters. And you'll be able to far better follow along if you have the Scriptures open. So it starts out, so Numbers 13, this idea of this you know, promised land investigative committee, it sounds like it's God's idea when you read Numbers 13. Here's the first two verses. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers, you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. But when you read the parallel passage in Deuteronomy chapter 1, Verses 22 and 23, you discover it wasn't God's idea at all. It was the people's idea. And so Moses, speaking to them in Deuteronomy 1, says, Then, after I finished the sermon, all of you came near me and said, Let us send men before us, that they may explore the land for us and bring us word again of the way by which we must go up and the cities into which we shall come. The thing seemed good to me, Moses says. 
and I took 12 men from you, one from each tribe. So what's happening? When you put together Numbers and Deuteronomy, God is allowing the people to lean on their own understanding. That's what he's doing. He's allowing them to carry out their unbelieving plans. And so a team of 12 is organized, one from each tribe. And in the verses that follow, in Numbers chapter 13, you can read the names of the spies and how the organization was laid out. Uh, notice the commission Moses gave to them. Jump down all the way to verse 17. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, go up into the Negev, that's the, the southern part of the land, and go up into the hill country uh, and see what the land is. And whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not. Be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. And then this little parenthetical comment, now it was the time for the first ripe grapes. To come in all right so the team sets out the team of 12 uh, but what I want you to understand is this expedition is nothing more than unbelief and fear disguised as wise policy and prudent preparation so they go into the land they are there verse 25 tells us they were there for 40 days they come back it's time to call the congregational business meeting and hear the committee report and so they call the business meeting, and it's called to order. And notice the, biz notice the report given to the business meeting, starting in verse 26. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. So there they are, right just across the southern border of the land. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land, which must have been amazing. And they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey. In other words, it is abundant in every way you can think of. And this is its fruit. However, however, the people who dwell in the land are strong. And the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. They dwell in the south. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. Jump down to verse 31. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, or the King James, I think, translates it as giants. There we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. There was a, a well-known uh, Methodist American preacher about a hundred years ago now, uh, pastored some uh, Southern Methodist churches, and um, as he uh, preaches on this text, he says, if you want to put in modern terms what this team reported, um, he said, they brought the following resolution to the floor of the business meeting. 
whereas we have spied out the land of promise, and whereas we have discovered certain facts about the land that God himself did not know, to wit that it is inhabited by giants, and whereas we have come to realize that God was mistaken in thinking that we could ever possess it, and whereas we have learned that he overrated both his own power and ours, be it resolved that we give up the task as a wild dream and turn our faces back to Egypt. There was, as this report was given, you notice in verse 30, there was a strong reaction because Caleb and Joshua want to give the minority report, but there was such an uproar. I mean, the people are shouting and there is anger, all sorts of things. In fact, go down to chapter 14 and notice the first four verses. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night. I mean, we've come all this way and now it's an impossibility. And the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt. We'd rather have died as slaves. Or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. There was anger. There was disappointment. There was bitterness. There was weeping, there was shouting. You can imagine the scene. But back to verse 30, there is a minority report that Joshua and Caleb put together. And you notice in verse 30, it's only with great difficulty that Caleb manages uh, to be recognized on the floor of the business meeting. And he presents the minority report, a very shortened version of it right here, that he and Joshua had put together. Notice verse 30. It says, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. That's the summary of our report. God promised us the land, Joshua and Caleb say. It's his gift to us. He's going to go before us. Let's go take it. Let's get ready tomorrow morning, and let's cross over the border and take the land. Look at chapter 14, starting in verse 5. So the people are angry, they're weeping. Let's go back to Egypt, verse 4. Verse 5, then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes, I mean, just as a sign of great sorrow and anguish, and said to the congregation of the people of Israel, here's the longer part version of the minority report, the land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. That's Joshua and Caleb's report. Well, the debate continued and it got out of hand to the point, notice verse 10, then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Talk about a business meeting getting out of hand. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord pronounces a word of judgment. Let's pick up the reading in verse 22. None of the men who have seen my glory 
and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times, and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despised me shall see it. And then let me read one more section of verses, starting in verse 29. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and all of your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your unfaithfulness, until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, forty days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity forty years, and you shall know my displeasure." I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this will I do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. That's the story. I've been talking about lessons Joshua learned before God called him to lead the people across the Jordan River after the death of Moses. In this series of events, Joshua learns a number of powerful lessons. One of them is the majority is not always right. Uh, and he learned also that when God calls his people to step out in faith, that when God issues a clear call and clear promises to delay, to second guess, to obey, to disobey, to rebel, to go your own direction, it always brings failure and disaster. Joshua learned those extremely significant lessons. Those are lessons for us as well. What does the text have to say to us as individuals and as a congregation? I want to draw these two chapters together and the story that I've rather briefly summarized. By laying before you, there are basically two questions that Numbers 13 and Numbers 14 lay before us. And the first one is this, will we walk by faith or will we walk by sight? The book of Hebrews says the people did not enter the land because of unbelief. Here's the question for each of us as individuals. Here's the question for us as a congregation. When you consider your own life, when we consider our ministry together as a congregation, what is it that takes up our vision? What is it that we focus on? What is it that we see? Do you and I see giants and walled cities and overwhelming obstacles? Is that what fills our vision? Or do we see God, the God of all power and glory? You see, it's interesting, the 12 spies were together as they went into the land. They were together for 40 days. It's not that Joshua and Caleb were blind or unobservant as they went into the land. They were not living in denial, the two of them. They were not living in some kind of fairy tale land somewhere. They clearly saw the giants. 
They clearly saw the walled cities as well as the other 10 of them did. But what they saw, what took the forefront of their vision is, but we have a great and awesome God. And he's given us a call, and he's given us promises, and he will go before us. They saw a God that the other 10 didn't see when they went into the land. I, I read somewhere uh, quite a while back now that uh, the Chinese character for crisis and opportunity is the same character. You translate it as crisis or opportunity depending on the context of the sentence. That's very interesting. And it got me to thinking, when you and I face a challenging situation or circumstances, either individually or as a congregation. Do we look at it as a crisis or do we look at it as an opportunity? Which is it? Do we step out by faith as God directs us or do we fall back in fear? Do we rely on human wisdom and human strength or do we rely on God's power through his Holy Spirit? So the first question is, will you and I, individually as a congregation, will we walk by faith or will we walk by sight? And the second of the two questions is this. Are we going to follow God's vision for us? Or, to use the, the imagery of the text here, are we going to wander around in the wilderness until we die off? Which is it going to be? I ask this because the Christian church in the United States is in crisis. There is a crisis of faith. There is a crisis of orthodoxy. There is a crisis of spiritual life. There is a crisis of conviction and courage. And much of the church in America is liberal. It is drifting. It is complacent. It is compromising and it is irrelevant. Let me give you several statistics. This is the most recent I could find. Um, estimates are, at present, in the United States, some 350,000 churches. And of those 350,000 churches, 80% of them are either plateaued or declining. 80%. Uh, in fact, research has shown that 90% of congregations reach their peak in attendance and outreach and ministry before they're ever 20 years old. In fact, uh, studies show most churches start declining after year 12 of their existence. There was a study published back in April of 2021 coming uh, out of the pandemic. Uh, and the estimates are that in the decade before the pandemic, from 2010 to 2020, somewhere in the ballpark of 75 to 150 congregations per week closed in the United States every week for 10 years, from 2010 to 2020. Uh, the study projects those numbers will accelerate post-pandemic, and they have. Southern Baptist Church, the largest denomination in the United States, has lost members for, I don't know what, 15, 16 years in a row now. Decline. I look at some of our own Lutheran Brethren congregations. There are congregations that are plateaued, no doubt about it. There are congregations in decline. What do you do? Just keep going on until you finally die off in whatever little town you're in. 
Let me read this for you. This is from uh, Gallup Research. They asked questions on a number of things. In uh, 1937, they decided for the first time to ask about church membership. They've asked it every year since. But in 1937, the first year they asked that polling question, 73% of all Americans were church members in 1937. The latest Gallup poll is down to 47%. And then this one was startling to me. In 1972, when I was a junior in high school, 92% of Americans said they were Christian. Whether they were necessarily a member or not, 92% said they were Christian. In 2020, just before the pandemic, 64%. And a full one-third of all Americans are totally unaffiliated with any religion. If you ask them, they wouldn't say Christian, Muslim, Buddhist, anything like that. It's like nothing. Want nothing to do with religion. One-third of all Americans. What's happened? So the question for me, the question for our leadership here, the question for each of you is, what will keep us from going down the road of stagnation and decline and closure, dying in the wilderness, if you will, like so many other churches? What will cause us to be vibrant and attractive, to be a powerful community of faith? A big part of that answer is maintaining that Great Commission vision. The Great Commission isn't just in Matthew 28. It's in all four of the Gospels in one form or another, plus it's in the book of Acts. And that Great Commission, the call of Christ is clear. Go and make disciples of all nations. That's the Great Commission. And the promise is, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So, what more do we need but in a prayerful, spirit-directed way to step out in faith with the gospel in as many ways as we possibly can? That's our calling as a church. If we lose a mission vision, if we lose an outreach vision, if we begin to compromise on the authority of Scripture or whatever all else it might be, we're going to be dying in the wilderness maybe sooner than later. And what about our individual lives? Let me just draw these thoughts together briefly with this. Think about yourself, the issues that you face, the challenges that you face, the struggles. What does Paul say? 1 Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. That's what I was paraphrasing in that first question. We walk by faith, not by sight. Walking by faith, by the way, is not the same thing as walking blindly. Because as a Christian, we have God's Word. As a believer, you have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit of God. Here's the verse every Awana child knows from the first year they come to Awana. Your Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus said, I am the light of the world, John 8, 12. The one who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. So living by faith is not saying it's all dark there. I'm on the edge of a cliff. I'm just going to leap out there. I don't know what's going to happen, but you know, kind of just take that leap in the dark. That's not walking by faith. Walking by faith is taking God's word and the light that it sheds on our pathway. Yes, it doesn't show us to the whole distance of the road, but here's the next step I'm calling you to take. And as that light shines on our pathway through the word of God, as the Holy Spirit opens it to us, 
through prayer uh, to take that step. Living by faith, and this is for each one of you, is taking God at his word and relying on the power of the Holy Spirit to see you through whatever you're facing. Maybe this morning you feel like I'm on the border of the land, so to speak. I think I'm supposed to take a step across, but there's giants on the other side. It's really uncertain. I don't know what I should do. The encouragement of this text is when God is with you, when he is directing you, to, to realize he will not leave you, he will not forsake you, his promises will not fall to the ground. And, and for you to find that all that you need in whatever you face is in Christ. And he is the all-sufficient one. He is that ladder that reaches from heaven to earth. Jesus Christ is the way by which all the resources of heaven come to us in our time of need. Someone has put it this way. Listen to this uh, just beautiful little paragraph. Jesus Christ is my bread when I am hungry. Jesus Christ is my comfort when I am lonely. Jesus Christ is my peace when I am feeling tense. Jesus Christ is my rest when I am feeling weary. Jesus Christ is my joy when I am feeling sad. Jesus Christ is my strength when I am weak. Jesus Christ is my living waters when I am thirsty. Jesus Christ is my wisdom when I am confused. Jesus Christ is my protection when I am in danger. Jesus Christ is my supply when I am empty. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided, great is thy faithfulness. The gospel songwriter says, Lord unto me. And so when God reveals for you individually, when he reveals his will to you, when God lays a calling upon your life, when there's a direction he's pointing you, the only God-honoring response is to step out by faith. To follow him wholeheartedly, no matter what the majority says or decides to do. There's a beautiful little chorus I learned many years ago. Many of you know it as well. It's written by a Christian from the country of India. He had come to faith in Christ, of course, from a Hindu background. And the hostility he faced... The persecution that he faced, a distinct minority, what is he going to do? And so he wrote this little chorus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me. Still I will follow. No turning back. No turning back. Let's pray together. Lord, um, you don't call us to easy things. Lord, sometimes you call us into territory where there are Canaanites along the coast and Amorites in the hills and whatever all else. You call us into terrain that is difficult, places we've never been before. But we don't walk alone. You go before us. Your word is that lamp that lights the next step. We find your strength and your supply as we cry out to you in prayer. You are sufficient for all that we need. 
Lord, so often we put, uh, we wet our finger and stick it in the air and see which way the wind's blowing. Lord, that isn't just for kids in school who want to go with the crowd and not stand out and go with the flow. It's for us as adults, too. We don't want to be thought as weird and strange. We don't want to stand alone against the culture of the day. Uh, we'd rather just kind of be quiet about it and maybe appear to just be going along with whatever is transpiring. Lord, give us courage to stand out. Dare to be a Daniel, the little chorus says. Dare to stand alone. Dare to have a, fir a purpose firm. Dare to make it known. And so, Lord, uh, may we in this day, as a congregation, as you call us into areas of ministry and mission, may we not draw back. May you give us direction in the days to come, how you might want to expand even. Yes, can we pray that? how you might want to expand and certainly strengthen the ministries you've entrusted to us. And Lord, in our lives, as we enter this new year, Lord, I know there are those of your saints who face uh, some difficult days ahead. Lord, may each one realize he or she is not alone. Yes, there are circumstances greater than any one of us and all of us put together, but we serve a great God, a God of greatness and awesome power. Uh, whose hand cannot be stayed, the scripture says. And you work on behalf of those who are your own. And so give us that heart of faith and trust. Uh, may your love fill us, Lord. Uh, may your peace fill us. And may uh, your grace sustain us and direct us from day to day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.